0: this week on the Back Table podcast.
1: In most clinics, there will be a placing urologist that may or may not be part of the same practice, and that radiation oncologist is, is going to receive that patient. And the vast majority of rectal spacing is performed by urologists, whereas in the evolution of it, it was brachytherapists that, that did all of the initial studies. So uh, what I mean to highlight is it's important to develop a relationship with this placing physician so that if you see a placement that is exceptional, please tell them. But if you see a placement that's not exceptional, please tell them. I believe that these open conversations and and feedback can really help practices get better. And ultimately, really, it's in the spirit of providing the best care for the patient.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Backtable Urology Podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and backtable.com. Now, a quick word from our sponsors. Today's Backtable podcast is sponsored by Boston Scientific's Urology Division. Boston Scientific is dedicated to transforming lives through innovative medical solutions that improve the health of patients around the world. This includes absorbable hydrogel spacers, that are intended to temporarily position the anterior rectal wall away from the prostate during radiotherapy for prostate cancer. Bussel Scientific Space OR Hydrogel System is a polyethylene glycol-based hydrogel design to temporarily create space between the prostate and the rectum and reduce the radiation dose delivered to the rectum during radiation therapy. Space OR hydrogel has been clinically shown to help reduce the side effects of radiation. For prostate cancer patients undergoing radiotherapy, maintaining quality of life may be just as important as treating the cancer. Minimize side effects, maximize patients' quality of life. Now back to the show.
2: Welcome back to the Backtable Urology Podcast. I'm your guest host, Juan Javier Dalog. I'm an assistant professor of urology at the University of California, San Diego. Today, I'm joined by Neil, who is a radiation oncologist, assistant professor. And uh, today, we will be discussing spacing within the context of radiation prostate cancer. Neil, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thanks so much, Juan, for having me. This is a pleasure to be here and to have this conversation with you all.
2: Neil, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself uh, before we get started?
1: Sounds great. My name is Neil Tonk. I'm an assistant professor of radiation oncology and radiology at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. I've been in practice for about seven years. I did my subspecialty training at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. My practice is in the treatment of men with prostate cancer and women with breast and gynecologic cancers. But my major focus is on brachytherapy and special radiation procedures. So I perform a significant amount of brachytherapy procedures as well as other periprostatic procedures, as well as coordinate a really talented group of seven physicians who work with me on these types of procedures.
2: Awesome. That's really impressive. Thank you. And for the audience, just a, a little bit of background about myself. So I, like Neil, have a large focus on transparental procedures. I do a lot of the transparental prostate biopsies here at UC San Diego. Also do a large bulk of our cryoablation ablation procedures nanonife, reversible electroporation, and all of our space replacements placements within UC San Diego. We have a little bit of a younger program. We've been doing spacing here for about four years. Prior to that, I had actually done spacing prior when I was a trainee in a residency. So I, I've been involved with rectal spacing since about 2017. 2018, when when Boston Scientific first came out with space war. In terms of my disclosures, you know, outside of a paid meal for Boston Scientific last year, I, I don't have any
1: yes, one. thank you so much. Uh, I'd also like to indicate that i'm a uh, I do receive payment for consulting for Boston Scientific and I have accepted a meal from Barry Jeller, Pallet Life Sciences now, Teleflex Medical, I believe.
2: Right. You Neil, know, tell me a little bit about when you started you know rectal spacing, your experience and how it's evolved over time?
1: Yes, absolutely. So, I I mean, I trained at Memorial Sloan Kettering, which has a very strong brachytherapy and transperineal prostate experience, which was excellent. And Memorial was an early adopter of rectal spacing. So back when this product was still sold by Augmedix before acquired by Boston Scientific, we started learning spacing as trainees in 2015 and 2016. With these procedures, we learned under general anesthesia with very careful supervision of the um, clinical representative at the time and it was great to learn in that training environment after finishing training coming to penn we started that program it was shared between a combination of urologists and radiation oncologists then over time due to a number of factors radiation oncology ended up doing the bulk of it and we have evolved from say training when i was a trainee to doing these under general anesthesia to where an entirely office-based practice and we do just select cases under anesthesia when required. So it's been good to see it over the years, and it's, there's definitely been an evolution in the different settings I've practiced in, as well as um, improvements in some of the techniques that we do to get an optimal placement.
2: It's really impressive. Now tell me a little bit more about that. So you've been doing it with general anesthesia, are you doing that still with general anesthesia for spacing, or you moved it to the office, or?
1: When I trained, we learned under general anesthesia which offers some conveniences in terms of patient comfort, as well as a lot of time. There's a, a feeling that you really don't have to rush as much as you want to get out of the OR as quickly as possible. There's a feeling that you can take your time to do this. Currently in our practice at Penn, we place around 200 spacers per year, and it's done entirely by radiation oncologists. We do it entirely in the office under straight local anesthesia and an oral anxiolytic, and that's been successful for the vast majority of patients. There are How do you say? There are uh, instances where some type of anesthesia is preferred, whether that's sedation or general anesthesia, due to patients with significant discomfort, perhaps significant poor experiences with a prior prostate biopsy, or developmental disabilities. So maybe a handful of patients per quarter, we will book special time in our ASC and perform those procedures there. But otherwise, entirely outpatient office-based under straight local.
2: And in terms of patient positioning, dorsal lithotomy, stirrups, maybe tape the scrotum out of the way with some paper tape there, chloroprep stick, where are you putting the block usually when you do these patients? What are you using?
1: Yeah. And Juan, just like you said, our our setup is not particularly creative or inventive. Dorsal lithotomy, legs up. We use a jumbo tegaderm to hold the scrotum out of the way. And then we prep with uh, chloroprep sticks. Our block is a pretty traditional periapical triangle block. So a superficial skin wheel, and then followed by deeper infiltration of lidocaine into the periprostatic tissue, but virtually entirely near the prostate apex and on either side of it. We have tried lateral blocks as well. And anecdotally, those are roughly equal. But since most of us trained with the standard kind of periapical triangle block, that's what we've stuck to.
2: And then in terms of holding the probe or using a stepper in the clinic, is it attached to the bed or is it a mobile stepper? We
1: use a Civco floor stepper. We do have two rail steppers as part of our brachytherapy program, but we try to keep those for those procedures. So you can use a rail stepper or you can use a floor stepper. The nice thing about the floor stepper is that it just has some less moving parts. It's a little bit less cumbersome when the patient's awake. Maybe that's just something that makes us feel better, but we've liked using the floor stepper for ours.
2: Yeah, to kind of give the audience a little bit more background, I basically follow the same that up is Neal. Not just as common as you can make it. We do use a bed mount for the stepper. We we actually use the same rail mount as the machine that we use for the EuroNav. When we bought the EuroNav, we had we had planned to do the transperineal prostate biopsies, and we bought the stepper with it, which was actually it's quite small. It's kind of the nice thing about it compared to some of the steppers out there. It can be kind of bulky for the room, but the the one that we purchased from EuroNav is a little bit smaller and. And compact and kind of kind of fit in a, like in you know, a small procedural room. One of the things I want to get your thoughts on is, is the, the necessity of needing a stepper for, for those. It's, it's an expensive purchase. I personally have tried to use some of the biopsy attachment equipment. There's you know two companies out there: Surefire and Precision Point, And I have not had a lot of success with it. I think that one of the differences between doing a biopsy and doing a spatial replacement is in a biopsy, you want the needle to be fixed. In a sense, it should be fixed to the ultrasound, and you know you want that mobility with your hand. In spacing placement, I found that it's more about you want the ultrasound to be fixed. You don't want the ultrasound to move during the procedure, and you want your needle to be mobile. And When it's attached to the biopsy, when the needle's attached to the probe, you just do not have that same level of flexibility. I don't know if you've experimented with using biopsy attachments over separates or not,
1: One, I think you've characterized it really expertly. And the way that you've generally framed those two different types of setups, I agree with you completely that in spacing, you want a very stable image, and then you want essentially complete freedom with your needle. But in a transperineal prostate biopsy, your needle's often following the pathway of the uh, ultrasound, kind of like how a flashlight would be pointing. So wherever your ultrasound's pointing, that's where you're going to go get your prostate needle biopsy. I have experimented with the Precision Point device from Perineologic. I think that offers some great advantages for for maybe learning users or or users that may be experiencing or or want to gain some additional proficiencies in the transparineal technique. My challenges are I've been trained and I've learned to really like that stable image that a stepper provides and having the ability to control the angle of the uh, needle, which you can do much better if you have a stable image and a freehand needle is a little bit easier than if the needle is, say, fixed to the probe. So we've we've tried it, and we've kind of stuck with what we know.
2: Yeah, I completely agree with you. The one thing I would say to anybody that's new to learning how to do, which is basically a completely freehand placement of a fiducial marker or a space sore, is to kind of keep in mind where the buttons are on the ultrasound, because the needle or the needle tip will always come out over the buttons. So I'd imagine you use fiducial markers also, but when i teach each other residents you know i i have them kind of practice with getting the fiducial markers over the buttons make sure they can visualize their needle and then as they get more comfortable with that kind of free-handed technique then we start to get them into you know doing this doing the spacing the hydrodissection, dissection and, and place it into the gel yeah absolutely orientation
1: is key and really nailing those basic ultrasound skills it's fantastic that you teach them to the trainees because they'll they'll have the confidence to do them in practice is really critical. So if you if you have confidence in your equipment and your orientation, it'll really help you be set up for success in the future.
2: And to those that, that are listening out there that are, you know, working with trainees, I, I have a, to admit, you know, found a little bit easier to work with the interns. I think one of the parts of our training, which is switching over a little bit, is we are so used to the visualization on transrectal for visualizing the prostate. And you have to kind of unbreak their their mentality of viewing the prostate in a different plane so when you're working actually with an intern i found the interns of the twos that really haven't done many transrectal biopsies they actually pick it up pretty quickly because they're they're seeing the the prostate for the first time on an ultrasound and it, it it's it's a little bit more easier for them to pick it up as opposed to you know the graduating q president in, in june of their two year
1: some excellent characterization i mean one of the i think one of the reasons that prostate brachy therapists Find comfort in doing these transperineal procedures. That's largely how we've been entirely trained from the start. So we haven't had to learn, say, one and then switch to the other. I've tried to learn transrectal procedures to round out that skill, but it's like unlearning transperineal to learn transrectal visualization in different planes.
2: Yeah, you know, we've talked a lot about the basic setup, and I I think that you know the audience probably has a good idea in mind of how they could do it in their office. How do you determine who is the best candidate? for space or and you know, do you do it in everybody? Does, does it matter to you if they're getting IMRT or SPRT or proton therapy or, or something else? Or, you know, does the anatomy or the size or the location of the tumor matter to you?
1: Yeah, Juan, that's, that's really great. Before going into, say, those, those indications, modalities, one aspect of the, the periprocedural setup, I think is very important, is who's helping you and what kind of assistance you may have in your procedure. You can do this by yourself, meaning that you can set up the kit by yourself, your table by yourself, but it's really, really, really helpful if you have a very consistent nurse or a very consistent medical assistant that knows how to do at least a portion of the setup for you, help you get your table laid out how you like, get your patient positioned how you like, as well as assembling the kit. So there are some times required to assemble the kit, and having a really proficient assistant being able to assemble that kit for you and giving them the confidence to do that by training them up correctly can just really make for a very um, a successful, very efficient procedure. So in our in our practice, most of our doctors don't assemble our own kits anymore. Our, our team will, and then we'll hand it to us when when ready. To your original question regarding who do we recommend spacing for, some of it is philosophical, but some of it I think is is data-driven. If you think about it in the broadest sense, you could recommend rectal spacing for any patient that's receiving definitive prostate radiotherapy, whether that's IMRT, SBRT, protons, combined external beam and brachytherapy, or even radio recurrent disease. And that could be for really any size of gland. This goes a little bit beyond the um, the IFU or the instructions for use and a little bit beyond the data from the pivotal trial. So philosophically, you could potentially recommend this to every patient. Where I think it helps to be more nuanced is that there's probably going to be populations that would benefit from it more, or you're more likely to expect a benefit from it. For example, in our practice, we recommend rectal spacing for everyone receiving proton radiotherapy in lieu of, a, say, a rectal balloon, because we know that that high-dose region really can only be pushed back by a spacer. A rectal balloon kind of push it forward. There's data from University of Washington that would support that. For, say, SBRT, it may also depend on what your preferred dose is. If you're doing, say, a lower dose, like the R2G regimen, or a PACE-B style of treatment, those rectal toxicities may be low enough that you don't feel like you want to use a spacer. But if you're using higher doses, say 40 or 45 gray, we use 40 gray in five fractions, the acute rectal toxicity rates go up. So we feel somewhat strongly about putting in a rectal spacer at those higher doses, which we believe in because it does yield a a lower two-year biopsy positivity rate. So you could use it on everybody, but I think there's really going to be populations where it matters. There is some newer data when you use, say, combined external beam and brachytherapy that rectal spacing may also matter as well. Some data from Memorial Sloan Kettering and, and a new paper in brachytherapy just a couple of weeks ago. How do you all think about these uh, different scenarios, or who best to recommend it to?
2: Yeah, I, I think that we we think about it a little bit differently. I, I would say all of our proton therapy patients receive it. We do it. I don't know if we've actually looked specifically at the amount of gray, but really, kind of anybody that's going to get SBRT, we recommend it to, and then. For IMRT, it, it, it's kind of hit or miss. I would say that overall, the amongst all, let's say we do, I don't know how many patients we do radiation on prostate in a year, but let's say it's 100, although it's probably more. I would say about 50 to 60% probably get rectal spacing. That number was, I think, significantly lower three years ago, just because we didn't have the best access to rectal spacing at our institution. I, I was really the only one that had voiced an interest in pushing the, you know, the program forward. We, we had one radiation oncologist. He did maybe 20 a year at his office. And, you know, it was really kind of not available to the patients who wanted it. And I think a lot of providers not being comfortable with the transparent approach, just, we just didn't offer here. And then when I kind of, you know, was hired a year, I said, you know, we should really offer this to a larger group of patients because there's a number of people that I think benefit, mainly the ones that you would discuss, but also anybody that, you know, may think that they may benefit, whether they have inflammatory bowel disease or some other, you know, rectal issue that they would necessarily need it for. And our volume since that, you know, in the last three years has significantly increased since we, you know, I we've added basically another provider that offers it. And I, you know, I've, I've actually tried to train other providers, you know, I, I don't necessarily need to be the one that does all the space chores, but it's not the most exciting procedure for urologists. So, you know, there's not a, I can't really get the sense that they're so enthusiastic about it. Although I do think it makes a difference for the patients, which is why I I continue to do it. In terms of the prostate anatomy itself, you know, I don't think that there's necessarily a contraindication to size. I I don't really look at the perirectal fat pad on the MRI. I don't always feel that that's necessarily accurate. You know, if you use an endorectal coil for MRI, although most of us don't anymore, that can obviously interfere with with the size of the perirectal fat pad you know if there is frank invasion of the rectal wall I, I don't think those patients are a good candidate for, for rectal spacing if they get a PSMA pad and there's an enlarged if there's a concerning mesorectal lymph node rectal lymph nodes are now believed to be an accessory pathway for prostate cancer based on a couple of publications I don't think those patients are a good candidate for spacing because it may limit the uh, the amount the or dampen the, the effects of the radiation to control their cancer. And then if there's significant ECE and no rectal you know, rectal wall involvement, I'm, a, I'm just a little bit more hesitant. Sometimes I'll do an office-based ultrasound. I'm thinking about doing it in the operating room. We will do some of them in our operating room, I think, because of the reasons you had mentioned. It, it's really kind of nursing support. It's a lot of work for a nurse if you think about it. I mean, if you have one nurse in there, she's got to set it up and set the patient up it's a fair amount of work for them. So giving the patients a little bit of modified anesthesia in the OR a little bit more comfortable for them and a little bit more easier for the setup. But, you know, kind of getting back to the extra capsular extension, you know, I, I will sometimes do that, you know, ultrasound, like just to see if if it's someone I'm, I'm really considering doing for, for space or I do a, a, actually a pre space or consult for all of my patients. Unlike the prostate biopsies, you know, prostate biopsies, I think, largely well understood by the population even if they're they're, they're trans cranial you know most of the providers are able to explain it for the spacer consult and, and you know we'll get a little bit more into the risks of the procedure i i do do a formal visit not just so the patients understand what's going on but for insurance purposes i mean there are a number of insurances that still are giving a little bit of pushback on rectal spacing whether usually an HMO or or some of the smaller plans and that, you know, documentation as to why you're doing it, we've been found successful to avoiding someone showing up, meeting them for the first time for a space or and, and then they, they their insurance denies it. So I, I, I do do a, a pre-op, usually like a quick 10-minute video. Some of the kind of nuanced things that I've kind of learned about it doesn't qualify for space spacing. San Diego, we actually have a pretty large cycling biking population, and I've found a number of patients with pelvic fractures that have been unfixed. So you know, in a patient that has a known history of a pelvic fracture that may be blocking placement of the gel because the bone is out of place, I think is a kind of a nuanced area where I have actually run into an issue twice where it just was really challenging, if not impossible, to get the gel in because somebody had a pelvic fracture from a cycling accident. And it's not something that we think about. Like something that is now on my mind, as well as, you know, some sort of rectal surgery before you can't get a probe in, I think in my mind are kind of the absolute contraindications to doing it. And then that you can probably remember this, but it, you know, when we first started doing this, there were a number of patients that had issues with, you know, placement of the perirectal gel and getting a perirectal abscess. So if somebody's had a history of a perianal fistula or inflammatory bowel disease, you know, I, I will be pretty upfront with them about, you know, doing a kind of an anal exam just to make sure that there's nothing there that is some clinical that they're not aware of due to that due to that infectious risk.
1: Yeah, I think those are those are excellent points. The aspect about the high number of cyclists in San Diego is is very interesting. We we have a relatively flat city in Philadelphia, but I don't think we have quite the same activity as as there. You brought up the point about, you know, some populations may specifically benefit. That also is a little bit of how our program evolved over the last six to seven years at Penn, particularly with your comment about, about access. In the very beginning, it was this one physician, limited slots, and we were prioritizing patients with either inflammatory bowel disease or, more commonly, that were on anticoagulation for other reasons. So AFib is, is one of them. So patients that may be at particularly high risk for rectal bleeding post prostate radiation. And then with additional access, additional physicians, and then essentially physician champions, as well as patients indicating that they, they were looking for this service, then we were able to build out the volume. But those are, those were kind of those early indications before those expanded indications. You had mentioned about prostate anatomy and size. I very much agree with you. The pivotal trial recommended gland should be generally under 80 grams, but there are data to suggest that you can still get clinically meaningful spacing. A paper from Marcio Fagundes, At Baptist in Miami, suggesting you can still get meaningful changes, even large glands, glands over 80 to 100 centimeters, or even small glands as well. Also touched on extra capsular extension. This brings up the point that the location of the extra capsular extension really matters. We'll have patients or physicians that won't send a patient for this, even though it might be in general done in our practice, or a patient who read their own report and said, oh, I have ECE and and I didn't think I qualified, even though I want this done. It's helpful for us that, that we review where that ECE is, because if a patient has, say, anterior ECE or far lateral ECE, that, that's not particularly important to do this procedure successfully. I very much agree with you, Juan, regarding the uh, aspect of gross posterior extracapsular extension. There is a theoretical risk that you may cut through that disease. Whether that has been demonstrated to be clinically meaningful or not, we have just chosen as a group to not mess with. But there are other physicians that feel that it's okay, that if you were to lift the prostate, that ECE would travel with it, as long as it's just not tethered to the anterior rectal wall. But again, we've chosen just not to do gross posterior ECE. And the last point is regarding the potential benefit of this. You had mentioned that population with Crohn's, or patients may have certain risk factors that may put them at higher risk for complications. One thing that we always try to remind ourselves when we do our periodic spacer QA meetings where we we kind of discuss cases and, and we review them together, is that this is an additive procedure. Every cancer treatment, every prostate cancer treatment does have its risks and side effects. Prostate radiation, prostate surgery, focal therapies, everything has its own potential risks. And prostate spacing is supposed to be additive. So if you can do it and you feel it might help, that's great. But if you can't, or you might put the patient at risk, we have the information that, that we have that's fairly robust to, to understand how most patients will do, and we can counsel their choices uh, appropriately for them to make the best decision for what kind of care they want to receive.
2: Yeah, I, I completely agree with you on a number of points there. To so back up, you mentioned about prostate volume and, and size, I mean, are you are you at any time using two gels or, or multiple gels for those larger prostates to to kind of reach back to the, you know, SV and all the way to the apex, or, or are you just using one regardless?
1: We've just been using one, but we, we make sure to, to inject the entire volume. We haven't experimented with two. The first aspect or the first reason probably is no one's, we haven't encountered it often enough to say like, you know, we definitely have to try it. The second is probably some degree of lack of clarity regarding reimbursement. If we open two kits and you just do one procedure, you know, what happens with that? For most patients with a, a large prostate, we're using just a single kit, but making sure that we, we put that gel maybe at the, the closest areas, which is usually mid-gland to to apex, as opposed to, say, putting it all at the base or, or near the SVs. Have you experimented with two kits or have you have you heard of... I'm sure you've heard of other people trying it as well.
2: Well, you know, one patient's SV invasion, We, we, you know, I gave, you know, kind of a, a bulk of a dose towards the SEMS, and then I used maybe another half a kit towards the mid apex. It's just not enough gel necessarily to kind of cover that area depending on the prostate size, but not not something my any means that I routinely do. It, you, you know, it, we're kind of getting into a little bit, but, I, you know, I think it may be, good to kind of transition a little bit to of talk about so there's two there's two gels out there now I mean there's there's as we all know there have been two trials that have been re- you know the most recent one published with like bare gel and in, in SVRT patients and then the older trial from Boston Scientific or Space looking at you know IMRT patients and they've both shown benefits in terms of rectal toxicity but the, the gels are they're, they're different and I, I think it's a little nuanced to anybody that's kind of getting into rectal spacing. So I can was hoping that we could maybe talk about both and what their kind of differences is. And you could maybe add to what I have to say. For Boston Scientific, you know, the space or gel, it's visible on CT. It's not visible on ultrasound. You know Once you place the gel, it kind of blocks out the prostate so you can't see that well. You do do a hydrodissection prior to space replacement, placement, which... I believe is an advantage because I have had a number of patients that just do not have a lot of perirectal fat. You know, we didn't really get into placement of the gel and the needle position at all. But you know, generally when you try to put these gels in, you kind of take the needle from an anterior approach to come down towards the perirectal fat plane. And if you've done a prostatectomy, you know that just some patients don't have much perirectal fat. I mean, you're right on the rectum sometimes. And the same is true when you're doing an ultrasound. So I don't really feel that this is a um, a learning curve issue, but rather an anatomy issue. You need that sometimes hydrodissection to kind of spread apart that area and make sure that you are placing the gel in the right area, because you can get it into the Navier's fascia. you can get it into the prostate, you can get it into the rectal wall. And while none of that has happened to me personally, I, you know, I I do feel that you know leaning on the hydrodissection is kind of um, Prevented that. And the other kind of major difference is, you know, for a space or you're a little bit under a time crunch, which is good or bad depending on how you look at it. You want to get the gel in and you want to get that patient a radiation usually pretty quickly. The way that our protocol here works is we put patients on hormone therapy for six to eight weeks and then they'll get the space or gel. And then usually within a week after that, they'll get their SIM and then they'll get their radiation. I think it's controversial whether or not you really necessarily need to give anybody ADT prior radiation or when you start it. I think from a scheduling perspective, because we just have so many patients, I don't think it matters if they get it at you know when they start ADT or when they're six to eight weeks in. But that has been the kind of general protocol that we've followed. And for bear gel, which we don't offer, you know, the major benefit I think is is it's visible on ultrasound and it also lasts longer, But You know, there have been concerns raised about how long does it actually last? In the trial, there were a number of patients that I think had absorption times beyond nine months or even 12 months, but majority absorbed within nine months. Now, we do know that the gel is safe. I think it's pretty popular for lip filler. I think that's where they got most of their their safety data. But that longer time, if there's a misplacement of the gel, I'm not sure how I would mitigate it but would like to get your thoughts on kind of the differences between the two.
1: Juan, you've, you've, really, you've really nailed the, the highlights of, of what they are. Some additional differences regarding the products, they have very different setups. Spacer from Boston Scientific requires a multi-step process where you have to mix a powder vial into a, into a liquid and then mix that all around to essentially create the hydrogel versus berry gel, now part of Teleflex, comes prepackaged in single use syringes, ready to use. There's no mixing and and they're stable. So the setup time is is different. You know, there's a little bit of preparation with spacer versus berry gel you can use kind of right out of the box. Did make the point regarding injecting, say all of it at once with spacer could be good and bad. Some of our doctors like when they place it, you place it over 10 to 30 seconds, whatever you choose to do, there's different ways to apply it, it's done it's over you know you've if you've hydrodissected you've created the pocket effectively which i also agree with you is a really 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 nice safety check to have to know that you are in fact in the right space and gives you an out to abort that procedure if you're not in the right space you put in the gel and then the whole thing is done bare gel you do have to be a lot more thoughtful in terms of where you put the gel and then where you reposition the needle so there's a lot more repositioning required And our more experienced users tend to be more successful because they're just so much more um, savvy at moving the needle around where they want it to go. On the whole, I can't really say that one is significantly faster than the other. You borrowed time from one aspect of it and maybe just put it in another aspect of the procedure. Really, our, our turnover time is the thing that dictates most all of it. The safety data for the the NASHA that's used in bear gel, yes, did mostly come from lip filler products. So these products are used all over the body already. And again, very impressive long term safety data for this. There is also a similar product that the company has, which is specifically used to bulk the the rectum for patients with, say, fecal incontinence. So, you know, deliberately placing this Nasher product into the rectum. Now, granted, those patients were not treated with radiation, so we can't necessarily infer that it's safe to radiate when that stuff is inside the rectum. Spacer will take around six months fairly consistently to go. I think reliably, we say we have about 12 weeks of stability. So there is a bit of time. You know, we place it basically right before we want the radiation to happen. But say during the COVID-19 pandemic, patients who had spacers placed and then our clinic shut down, we kept them on ADT because we weren't treating non-emergent patients with prostate radiation for a while. So some patients we either did another procedure on or they just went ahead and did their treatment even after the gel resorb. But the berry gel is supposed to resorb, I think, mostly within six to nine months. But there are data suggesting that you will still have gel at 12 to 18 months afterwards. There is a reversibility aspect of berry gel that is offered. You would use hyaluronidase to do that. But I think the experience is very limited and there would be a fair amount of counseling to be done to tell a patient, hey, it wasn't in the right place, but you know, we need to put you to you know, we need to do another procedure to reverse it and then maybe maybe fix it. I I don't really have a good grip on how how widely it's done, except I've I think I've just heard about a single case of it, really. But it's another potential aspect of it. But you kind of hope you just do it right the first time so you never have to go back.
2: Yeah, I I think this is one of the things that kind of goes back into the pre op counseling session I tell patients about, you know, in urology, we do a lot of different types of implants. We do penile implants. We do prosthesis of the testicle, AUS. And if those devices get infected or if they're misplaced, we can take them out. You can't really do that with the gel. The gel becomes this sort of amorphous material within the perirectal space, and it is not whether you're injecting something into it to dissolve it or you're trying to suction it out. I mean, it's just not possible. So once it's in there, I mean, it's in there. It's not coming out. You kind of just got to wait until it absorbs. Going back all the way to when I you know, was a trainee and we first started doing these, I mean, there were some patients that had infiltration of their rectal wall. and I, I, The guidance at that time, and I haven't seen it in a while, has been just to wait for about three to four months before offering them radiation. Is that generally what you've done when that does happen?
1: Yeah, the management of patients who have a suboptimal placement is is very imperfect and very heterogeneous. In the original trial, I believe 7% of patients on, on a post-hoc analysis had some degree of rectal wall infiltration using the Spacer Classic. The Spacer View and Spacer Classic, neither of them are particularly visible in ultrasound, but the Spacer View is, is what we prefer at Penn. That is available on, on CT. So all these patients had an MRI in the original study because that's what was required. I think 7% had rectal wall infiltration, but there's no high-grade subsequent toxicities that were experienced by these patients. In terms of how we tend to manage it is most of our patients that are treated at our main campus, we have a distributed model. We have around 60 doctors in our radiation oncology practice spread across our various sites. And in these patients, the ones that are treated at the main campus, they all get an MRI anyway. So we do have that to, to reference. Patients with minor minor infiltrations, which is really just the, the superficial layers of the rectum, will go ahead and will continue to treat without issue. Any patients with, say, any deep infiltration deeper into the submucosa, or patients, we've seen some patients from outside that have had gel placements that have even intraluminal gel, we absolutely will not treat. There's some thought to say that if you, say, do an anoscopy and check if there's no gel in the lumen, you can proceed forward. It's hard to say if, if that's correctly the data-driven approach. If there is a sufficient amount of physician worry, I think it's just reasonable to wait. Most patients can comfortably wait for prostate cancer treatment, particularly if they're on ADT. But superficial infiltrations, we if we see it, we're generally comfortable proceeding forward with it. But again, we take a, a, a nuanced look and, and make sure to look carefully. That's only just a little bit. How do you guys manage these in your practice?
2: Again, you know we don't do two hundred a year. We probably do about seventy. And I haven't, I just, we just haven't had one. So I, I've actually was was just taking notes here you with know, my microphone on mute on, on how you are managing the, uh, because rect- I know it's, it's, it's bound to happen. I mean, you know, kind of going back to the, the way that we talked about how the gel is placed. I, I mean, if, if there's just not a giving perirectal flat pad, even if you follow all the maneuvers, sometimes you get a little bit of superficial infiltration. It's just not something you could avoid. Have you ever aborted a space shore, like not done it or a, or a space, the procedure just because you just couldn't get the space open yeah it's
1: it's uncommon but I, uh, it's it's definitely happened in my own practice and, and my partner's practice but it is it is quite uncommon i think the situations where it's been uh, pretty particular and again this is most this is all anecdotal because even in the last i don't know couple of years i couldn't think of more than five patients and we and we do a, f- a few hundred a year Significant patient discomfort. Again, most of, uh, most of this is an office-based practice. If patients just really can't get comfortable, then we'll abort the procedure, even after the, the triangle block. Some patients do have significant amounts of scar tissue from, say, previous prostate biopsy or a thin pad or any number of various reasons that I don't actually quite know. And if you aren't able to comfortably hydrodissect, then we abort the procedure. That's definitely, I've definitely seen that. And I've definitely done that myself. And a third example, we treat a fair amount of radio-recurrent prostate cancer, so intraprostatic recurrence after prior definitive prostate radiation. And whether we treat with salvage HDR, which is our preferred, or prostate SBRT, which is a bit newer in our practice, it's nice to have a gel in to offer some space between that and the rectum to mitigate the rectal toxicity. But those are the kind of three major family of the reasons why we would abort a case, but it's been very uncommon to do that.
2: I haven't had up work cases, but I had similar to Concerns to you or where there was I had one patient was a little tough. I was able to hydro laterally as one thing that is helping before is, you know, if it's not opening up directly under the prostate, if you're able to hydrodissect laterally, sometimes that water will travel medially and open up the space a little bit for you to, to, to get that space open. But yeah, it's tough. I mean, the radio recurrent prostate cancer patients, I mean, that that area can be pretty scarred down. You know, in my other podcast was transparent prostate biopsies and maybe a plug for that. But I mean, those patients do not have any fibrosis posteriorly. I do think it is a, a benefit not just to doing the biopsy, but also whether you're doing spatial replacement or radical prostatectomy. I think the plane posteriorly with a transferral prostate biopsy is just much cleaner compared to transrectal, especially if the patients have some sort of hematoma. We've talked a lot about, you know, risks of the procedure, you know, misplacement of the gel you know, the, the two other major risks, and you could say maybe a third is bleeding, although I've never had a bleeding complication for this, is really infection and then the possibility of PE. For infection, are you giving antibiotics now or are you giving a day or three days? Originally, I think it was five days. You know, we have kind of tailored our antibiotic program. Originally, I was doing the three days of Cipro and then it, I didn't really see a benefit to it, so I cut it down to one day. But I know a number of centers are not doing anything, but I've, I've always been afraid to do that. You know, sometimes I'll do some pro. I don't know what, what you're normally doing.
1: I think there's a lot of heterogeneity in this practice, particularly as the excitement around transperineal prostate biopsy continues to roll up and, and really compelling data about antibiotic-free prostate biopsy, which I think is tremendously exciting, and I think it's phenomenal for patients and, and physicians. For spacing, since there still technically really is the, the possibility of violating that rectal wall, even though it should rarely, if ever, happen, we've chosen to give antibiotics. We worked with our local antibiotic governance committee at our hospital to come up with guidelines. And our patients will get three days of, of cefpodoxime, which is concordant with most of our other transperineal or transrectal urologic procedures. But again, there is some heterogeneity. Some physicians will just do a single day of pre-procedural There are some clinics that will do, particularly if the patient's asleep, will offer IV ceftriaxone as part of the procedure. The last one, you know, we'll do a rectal swab and then and offer tailored antibiotics. So I would say most clinics are offering antibiotics. It would be, it's rare to actually probably have an encountered one that's not doing it. For these spacing procedures, we've taken maybe just a quite uniform approach, you know, cefpidoxine, but that's concordant with our local antibiotic um, resistance guidelines.
2: Are you testing the urine at all for the, you know, due to the concern about the fiducial mark replacement? Or are you always doing fiducial markers with the time and spacing? Or
1: anyone with an intact prostate will get prostate fiducial markers. Even though we have comb beam CT for prostate radiation, since we have so many locations, the quality of these CTs may vary for on treatment localization. So everyone uh, who's getting a rectal spacer is getting fiducial markers, but we're not routinely testing urine.
2: The, the reason I ask that is, you know, in our other, in our transparent talk, Matt Alloway always gets a urinalysis prior to prostate biopsy. You know, we don't do that here. We don't get UAs or urine cultures. You know, I have had a couple of patients get UTIs after spacer. I believe probably from the fiducial marker instrumentation, just, you know, you can irritate the prostate if someone's got some baseline BPH and inflammation. The last safety here is the PE risk. You know, I have to admit, when I got that letter from Boston Scientific, I think it was maybe a year ago, I was done. They even, I wouldn't have even thought that someone would be at risk for a PE. I think the thinking is they believe that there was an intravascular injection by the gel, which I believe would be possible for both gels, and it is a, quite a rare occurrence. But I mean, have you seen it before or, do you, or what are your thoughts about it? Do you talk to patients routinely?
1: Yeah, we have not done, say, a separate pre-procedure consultation. We have an open access system where they're referring radiation oncologists has recommended the spacer or not recommended according to our physician group's kind of internal guidelines. And then we do a pre-procedure nursing call. And then right before the procedure, physician will face-to-face rediscuss the the procedure start to finish as well as the risks. We do mention it. I have not seen it in my practice. If there's a subclinical one, we would have never known about it. It does highlight making sure that you are in the right space before you do this. So the hydrodissection will help ensure that you're in the pocket, as well as doing at least a, a, a at least a cursory aspiration right before you place everything. I can see how it's theoretical. We have seen gel placed at least in part in say the prostate venous capsule. We've seen some gels that were placed by some outside clinics where you, you'll see a kind of a basket just forming around and between the true and false capsule of the prostate, but we have not seen that in our practice. But we'll we'll tell patients about it. But it's such a low risk that it hasn't affected our recommendation.
2: I agree with you. I mean, I think that it is. I mean, we're talking probably 0.001 percent of patients that may even experiences. I think, you know, as you kind of alluded to in your, you know, very sophisticated and well-thought-out antibiotic rectal swab, I think that that is probably the, the bigger risk to patients is really the infection or, or misplacement of the gel. We've talked about a lot of different things today. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about that we didn't discuss?
1: Yeah, I'd like to highlight, and it's really great to have this conversation with you on because you're an experienced user, you're a urologist, and it sounds like you work with your radiation oncologist to have a great relationship with them. The UCSD group, I've I love reading data that comes out of UCSD radiation, just a very special group, is, uh, is to form those relationships with your placing physician. So we, in our practice, our radiation oncologists will place our spacers for our other radiation oncologists. We place them for other patients who will seek treatment elsewhere even. That's mostly because we, we do the procedures in our in our clinic. But that's not true for most clinics. Most clinics, there will be a placing urologist that may or may not be part of the same practice and that radiation oncologist is, is going to receive that patient. And the vast majority of rectal spacing is performed by urologists, whereas in the evolution of it, it was brachytherapists that, that did all of the initial studies. So uh, what I mean to highlight is it's important to develop a relationship with this placing physician so that if you see a placement that is exceptional, please tell them. But if you see a placement that's not exceptional, please tell them. I believe that these open conversations and, and feedback can really help practices get better. And ultimately, really, it's in the spirit of providing the best care for the patient. So I really encourage urologists or placing urologists or placing radiation oncologists and then receiving radiation oncologists to really get to know one another and, and be able and, and comfortable to review images together, to review quality of placements together, to review patient experiences together, because that that will help the patient.
2: Thanks for the kind words about our program here. And I, I know you have such a tremendous program at Penn i will have to, you know, we have uh, Phil Perrazio there is probably wreaking havoc with his new appointment to say hi on the next time you see him. But, you know, to kind of get into the, are you tracking your own GI toxicity outcomes and compare them? You, you kind of alluded to a little bit, but I was just kind of curious.
1: Yeah. I mean, our department takes a pretty hard tack towards PQI, practice quality improvement, and then QA. The, the major example that I'll bring up is what we call independent checking. So in, in our practice, it might be one of three physicians that places a a rectal spacer, whatever the brand, but a second partner has to check that placement on the imaging. So as soon as the imaging is back in our radiation electronic medical record, a task shows up on your list that says independent review of spacing gel required, and a second physician has to go check that. And then, of course, if the spacing physician is not the same as the treating physician, for example, if I place a gel on a patient, but that patient's going to receive treatment at one of our network sites in wonderful Cherry Hill, New Jersey, that receiving physician's also going to check that gel. So there are multiple eyes that will see every every placement. So there are opportunities to say, well, this one was really good and this one really wasn't good. What happened here? We write notes within our record regarding that. We record things like the mean separation, symmetry, and the quality of placement. And any patient that has any Adverse outcome, we, we track internally, as well as report to the vendor if needed. That might be a bit extra. I don't think it's necessary for every practice, but it highlights something that we feel strongly about in in our practice.
2: No, it's really, really impressive. And it, it's so um, comforting to hear that you're, you're that deeply involved in this, as well as your department. I think we're, we're, we're just about at the end of our talk today. Are there any parting words you'd like to leave for the listeners available?
1: Uh, it was it was really great to be here. I love learning, and as much as I think I know about the things that I do, Juan, it was really really wonderful to learn from you as well as extend my own thinking and and continue to be creative in my approach. I'd like to just close with a comment that you made about about training. Training is really important. Getting high quality training from great mentors. You know, you were talking about how you work closely with your interns and twos. is a really excellent opportunity for trainees to get good and proficient at what these things are. And have opportunities to get better. So, if there are trainees that are, are listening to this, you know, please take your mentors up on these opportunities to do this, get better. And your biggest leverage, if you want new things in your future practice, is is to introduce them when you're switching practices.
2: I love it. Yeah, really amazing advice. What I would say to the listeners, at least from my perspective, is you know, kind of reinvigorating our own program here and expanding it. I think it's worth it for the patients. And you know, I, reimbursement may not be that great, but I I think that it's worth the red tape because I do think it means a clinically meaningful impact on them. You know, if you have some level of transparent procedure experience, or even if you don't, and you're thinking about doing it and integrating it into your hospital system, I, I do think it's worth it. And I do think you should you should put the time in for it. Absolutely. Thanks everyone for joining us today. Neil, it was great having you. And uh, we're looking forward to having you all back in the near future for another Backtable urology Podcast.
1: with support from Josh McWhirter, Aaron Bowles, Bowles, Nick Shellcross,
2: and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Devante Delbrun,
1: Social media and PR by Chi Ding, Administrative support provided by Jamila Lee
0: Thanks again for listening and see you next week.